So don't worry, I'm not wanting to preach till midnight. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, help us to think clearly this morning in your presence and together here as a community. In light of your word and in light of the world in which you have placed us. Help us to think together for your glory. Amen. Albert Camus, the great philosopher and novelist of the last century, said, quote, there is but one serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. I therefore conclude that the meaning of life is the most urgent of questions. Now, when Camus penned these words about the meaning of life, he was speaking on behalf of many people of our time, or at least of his time. That's surely why he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957. His words interpret the experience of many people. He said, quote, describing our daily lives, rising, streetcar, four hours in the office or factory, meal, streetcar, four hours of work, meal, sleep, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, according to the same rhythm, this path is easily followed most of the time but one day, the why arises. Now, Camus was an atheist when he wrote these words. And for him, as he saw it, this is the problem he called absurdity. Here we are, he said, people who are thinking about our plans, thinking about the meaning of our lives, what we want to do, while we live in a world that is like a big mindless machine that is not interested in us or not interested in our questions about meaning. That's what he called absurdity. Our lives, we think about meaning and purpose, and the universe is a big machine that doesn't care about our purpose. The solution that Camus proposed is in one of his novels, which are fascinating. One of his characters sets out to become, quote, a saint without God. That is, to try to live humanely and responsibly as a protest against the blind nature of the universe. In this way, Camus thought, people can create meaning for themselves. Camus' great hero is taken from classical mythology, is Sisyphus. Sisyphus was condemned to spend his whole life pushing a rock up a hill and then turning around and watching the rock roll back down the hill, walking to the bottom and push the rock up the hill again. And Camus, rather than thinking that Sisyphus was miserable, said Sisyphus was happy precisely at the point where he turned around and watched the rock roll back down the hill. Now, you notice that Sisyphus was happy at the point of transition, watching the transition. Now, in response to Camus and others of our neighbors who have questions about meaning, I think it's proper for us to turn to the fourth commandment that we're talking about today. The answer to the question of meaning is in these words, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On a weekly level, we can experience meaning as we transition back and forth between work and worship, between the activities of six days and the specialness of Sunday as the Sabbath. The meaning of our lives is to go back and forth between work, 
working for God, and worship is worshiping God more directly. But the two defining each other, our work is for our worship and our worship is for our work, back and forth, that is where we find meaning. And the Sabbath commandment tells us to do this very practically, how we structure our time, six days and one day. God's word in this way establishes the meaning of our lives. Now, like Camus, many of our neighbors today think they have to decide on the meaning of life. But we say, no, God has established the meaning of our lives for us. But we should notice the transition back and forth. I think that is helpful to know. Think about how God created Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the air and the birds of the sea. So I got the wrong fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, Christians have often called this the cultural mandate, that God wants us to be active in building an entire culture for his glory, though we might call it the developmental mandate. God's purpose was that Adam and Eve and their children and grandchildren would be sub-creators with God, of creating an entire society, families, farms, communities, all the learning and organization that goes into developing families and farms and businesses, and all of this would be for the glory of God. Honoring God was what Adam and Eve were created to do, but not just by sitting still, but by going and doing something, developing an entire civilization. And worshiping God was to be the purpose of that civilization they were commanded to create. Of course, the fall into sin distorted everything, really everything. Instead of wanting to honor God by what they were doing, uh, we can go to the Tower of Babel, or we'll get to that in a minute, but think of the sin of Adam and Eve. They wanted to get God out of their lives, really take the place of God, get rid of God, and that new motivation spread to everything. Everything that Adam and Eve and their children started to do was reflected, was influenced by their sinfulness. It changed the direction and character of everything they did. And this reached its high point at the Tower of Babel. You can read the story in Genesis 11 sometime. That was an attempt to build a whole society and culture with families and farms and businesses without God. All of these elements of culture and society were to find their meaning in worshiping humanity in place of God. In some ways, the story of the Tower of Babel is implementing, a big group of people implementing exactly what Adam and Eve set out to do after sin, to live without God, to develop a whole society without God. Surprisingly, like our time, you might say. We could describe the effort at Babel as the attempt to build the city of man instead of building the city of God. God wanted us to build a city for his glory. Instead, at Babel, we see them creating a city for their own glory. Now, in modern European history, there have been at least two uh, big attempts to abolish Sunday in order to try to build the city of man, the earthly city. This was, of course, part of the anti-Christian orientation of the French Revolution. I'm sure some of you have read about that. Not only were the, was the French Revolution an attempt to eliminate the role of the Catholic Church in France, it was specifically to abolish Sunday. Uh, from 1792 to 1805, for over 12 years, France used 10-day weeks. And people were forbidden to talk about Sunday. You couldn't even mention it. Uh, 
the French Revolution was implementing a, a line of thought from Voltaire, one of the French philosophers who inspired the French Revolution. He said, quote, if you want to kill Christianity, then abolish Sunday. Think of the anti-Christian orientation of the, the Soviet Union. Not only were there many, many numbers of Christians killed during the, French, the Russian Revolution, as part of the anti-Christian orientation of the R Russian Revolution and the Communist Party, they also abolished Sunday. From 1929 to 1940, they experimented with five or six day work weeks. And the five or six was not the important thing. The important thing that it was not seven. And there was no Sunday in the Soviet calendar. Both the French and the Soviet attempts to change the length of weeks were inspired by the idea that to build the city of man, to build the earthly city, we have to stop thinking about God and stop celebrating Sunday or any Sabbath to worship God. Get busy building the earthly city, stop thinking about the heavenly city. At the same time, some of the leaders, I think, in both the French and Russian revolutions probably knew a little bit of the history here. You see, the seven-day week was established by Emperor Constantine around the year 320 AD. He was the first Christian emperor in the Roman Empire. Until his time, they had different people around Europe and the Mediterranean world had different lengths of weeks. Some had seven-day weeks, but some had eight-day weeks. Could you imagine how difficult it would be writing to someone with the technology of the day and saying, uh, we need to get together for a business meeting, but the first thing to discuss is what, how long your weeks are so we can find the right day. Something we couldn't imagine today. But they had different lengths of weeks, which caused terrible chaos for the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, and European society. And Emperor Constantine said, no, we're going to have seven-day weeks. We're all going to do this. Now, and that was part of what contributed to the growth of Christianity in Europe and the Mediterranean world. Because suddenly with the seven-day week that fit with biblical stories, uh, it tended to create a space and time where people would come to church to hear the gospel on Sunday. So part of the way Christianity spread across the Western world was through having seven-day weeks. Uh, because then there was a space and time when people would naturally be inclined to go to church and hear God's word. I'm sure no one here shares the ideology of the French or Russian Revolution and wants to abolish Sunday. But we might share a little bit of the feeling behind that if we haven't really thought about it. Some of us might feel as if the meaning of our lives is only to contribute to building the earthly city. Is the meaning of our lives finished and complete by our careers, by building families, by building businesses? Or is the purpose of our life something higher? It includes honoring God. Now, when God rescued the people of Israel from Egypt, he called them once again to go back to work as his sub-creators in his world. He said, six days shall you labor. Now, in Egypt, they had been forced to labor without a Sabbath, and they were forced to labor for the glory of Egypt. Now, and unlike uh, life in Egypt, they were free from being forced to work for the glory of Egypt. They could work for the glory of God. And to do that, God gave them this two-sided commandment, work and worship. Six days you shall work, but one day is set apart as special to worship me. 
So this was a con the seven-day week that the Jews followed was a constant reminder of this twofold commandment, work and worship. As after working for the glory of God six days, they were to gather in community to worship God on one day. The Sabbath gave meaning and purpose to life for the other six days. Honoring the Creator was to be the motivational center for all that they did. In their planning, their creativity, life in the family, life in business, life in the farm. And so across the Old Testament, we see the meaning of life is found by the transition back and forth between work and worship. Diligent work makes a good Sabbath day proper, possible, but proper worship on the Sabbath is what empowers and directs life for the other six days. We're doing everything else. We worship God and we work for God, but the back and forth between work and worship helps establish this pattern in our minds, our lives, our hearts. In this way, our lives can be filled with doing everything for the glory of God. Now, with the coming of the New Testament, the meaning of the Sabbath has been enriched and changed just a little bit. God chose to raise Jesus from the dead on what was reckoned as the first day of the week at that time. And because Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, as they counted weeks, the first day of the week became known as the Lord's Day. And so we see Luke seemingly speaking for what all Christians should have known in the book of Acts. He said, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread as if everyone reading would know that, of course, that's what Christians do. But in this transition, we see a slight change, a little addition, but also some real development in the meaning of the Sabbath. For us, each Sunday is not only a Sabbath, but it's also a miniature Easter. Because every Sunday when we come together, we're celebrating that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. This has enriched the meaning of the Sabbath. And I think it also enriches the meaning of the six days of the week for us. We'll come to that. But now we see the meaning of our six-day work week is based not only in creation, but it's also based in the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, there was a limited time during which the Sabbath was a mark of the national covenant of God for the people of Israel. You see that, for example, in the book of Exodus 31, we read, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. It was because for a limited time, the Sabbath was the symbol of a national covenant of, with, between God and Israel that there, was, uh, there were strict penalties for breaking the Sabbath. And for a period of maybe 1,400 years, the Sabbath had that meaning. It was a symbol of the national covenant between God and the people of Israel. And there were harsh penalties for breaking it. But that changed. The, uh, because with the resurrection of Jesus, clearly something new was intended for the Sabbath. We saw that in the readings from uh, Matthew 12. And that's further explained in other places in the New Testament. In Colossians 2, verse 16, for example, we read Paul writing, do not, any, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. We were not, people were not to be judged because of what they did on the Sabbath. That's because the meaning of the Sabbath as a sign of the national covenant was finished. But it doesn't mean the Sabbath is gone. The old principles are still there. We see Jesus recognizing the Sabbath, celebrating the Sabbath. Now, sometimes he seems to have intentionally done things that would annoy and irk people who had a legalistic approach to the Sabbath. That's, we should keep that in mind. 
that one of the ways Jesus observed the Sabbath was by irking and annoying people who took the wrong approach to the Sabbath. But Jesus clearly observed the Sabbath. And the, early, the New Testament church always gathered on the Lord's Day to celebrate that. So one of my interests then is always, well, how have our Christian ancestors talked about this? Maybe we can gain some wisdom from that. So I've looked at what, say, the, uh, the Protestant Reformation from 500 years ago had to say. And the emphasis we find in the Protestant Reformation is on a real celebration of the Sabbath, but without trivial or harsh rules. I'll take the Heidelberg Catechism as an example of that. It says that the, the fourth commandment requires, quote, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Notice the emphasis there. It's celebration and doing that together as a community. Listening to God's word, celebrating the sacraments, but in a public way, coming together as a community to celebrate and worship together. If we look at the other uh, books written from the Protestant Reformation 400, 500 years ago, there's one additional principle that often shows up, and that is, is that business owners or business managers were to make sure their employees were able to celebrate the Sabbath that there would be a great sin if a Christian business owner or business manager did not make sure their employees had Sunday off to go to church. Now, if the Sabbath is no longer exactly a, a sign of the covenant, it makes, us, makes it easier for us to, to follow what Jesus did uh, and not to get too concerned about some other little questions that sometimes bother people regarding the Sabbath. For example... Uh, these days, different countries have different definitions of when the week starts and ends. You can probably hear I'm an American. In the United States, Sunday is legally the first day of the week. In the Czech Republic, Sunday is legally the seventh day of the week. That's established by the rules in society. Should that really bother us? Should we say, well, the early Christians met on the first day of the week, Therefore, since we're living in the Czech Republic, we should gather to worship on Monday, as the early Christians did. Would that somehow bring us closer to God or make us more holy? I really don't think it would. And the reason is not just our own convenience. It's because the Sabbath is no longer specifically a sign of the covenant people. It's a broader celebration of the principle that, of the six-in-one structure of life, that God wants us to work for six days and worship for one day, back and forth. And so, too, the issue of uh, do we have a, a two-day weekend or a six-to-one pattern of life? Uh, having a two-day weekend is a relatively new, new idea. Almost no one mentions that before 100 years ago, and it's part of work and labor reforms. And to make, to make life easier for workers, that a two-day weekend was established. The American industrialist Henry Ford played a large role in that. But they also had the idea that this would make life, make the society a little bit more hospitable to people who chose to worship on a day other than Sunday. Uh, when the idea of a two-day weekend first was discussed, some Christians were opposed to it. They said, no, 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 the Bible says we have to work six days a week, and so we have to work six days a week. 
But soon the idea seemed to be broadly accepted. Well, we spend five days of work, work working at work, and one day a week working in the family, and one day a week for the, working for the things related to the church and Sabbath. Again, if we were to say this is still a sign of God's covenant, then we might be hesitant to say a two-day weekend is okay. But I think for us, the important thing is the pattern between worship and the rest of life. And whether we have a, a five plus two or a six plus one approach to the week is not so important. It matters that we have work and worship. Now, this morning, as I was getting dressed to come to church, I put on a new pair of slacks that my wife, Leslie, very kindly bought for me. And I found something in the pocket. I thought, what's in the pocket? So I pulled it out. There's an advertisement. Interesting slogan on this advertisement. It says, work to play. I thought, oh, it says work to play. I'm preaching about work to have. I better read the fine print. I was wondering if I'm allowed, if these slacks are for work or for play. Also wondering if I'm allowed to wear them to church if my slacks are designed for work or for play. Went on to read the fine print and says, these slacks are fine for work or for play. I was relieved. But the slogan is what's important, work to play. For many of our neighbors, that's the meaning of life. Here it is. It's in my pocket this morning. People work in order to play. Um, is that the meaning of, li of our lives, or is there something more? Uh, I think the, this happens in the province of God to be exactly our question this morning. Do we work to play, or do we work to worship? Of course, play should be a part of our lives. Uh, I'm even playing now the way I'm talking about this. But do we work to worship, or do we work to play? Is working to play a sufficient answer to the question of meaning of life? I think not, obviously. Now, the story of the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2 and 3. I hope it's familiar with you. It ends in the holy city. If you look at Revelation 21 and 22, you see that the end of the Bible is the city. The beginning is in a garden. Excuse me a second. Just make... This makes it look to me as though the cultural or developmental mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve continues into eternity. Our eternal hope is probably not to sit on a cloud and play a harp, though music may be a part of things. I think um, our eternal hope is that we be active in the heavenly city, doing what God gave Adam and Eve to do from the beginning. Uh, when we fully receive all the benefits of Christ's resurrection, uh, that will transform us far more completely so that our bodies, souls, and minds will lead to a new society in eternity. That will be the real holy city. And my personal expectation, that is, in eternity, in the new Jerusalem, the holy city, that work and worship will be more closely unified than they are now. I think the transition between six and one is partly because Adam and Eve had sinned. If they had never sinned, maybe we wouldn't have a seven-day week with six and one. It would have been all combination of work and Sabbath. That's my own speculation. But for us, every Lord's Day is also a celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, now, what does that mean for us? That every day we are reminded not only that Jesus rose, but that we are now citizens of the future heavenly city. We are citizens who belong to the future heavenly city, and our identity, the way we do things now, is uh, 
should derive from that, that we should so much as possible live now as the citizens of the future city of God, practicing and preparing for that in our lives as we live now. Part of the meaning of our lives is to point forward to what God is going to do in the return of Christ, and we have the new heavens and the new earth. And that we should show this so much as possible, not only on Sunday, obviously we should then, but also in the meaning of our lives Monday through Saturday. What we do and how we do things should be pointing forward to the, the future glory that awaits. So we should act and talk like people who belong to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. Now, as I, you know, several years ago, I was a philosophy professor, and I taught about Canoe from, from time to time. I read his books carefully. One of the things that struck me is that uh, he almost never mentions Sunday. I don't think he does anywhere. Uh, and even in this essay about the myth of Sisyphus, the meaning of life, he mentions specifically what people do on six days of the week, but he never mentions Sunday. And yet he noticed, as I said, that meaning is found in this going back and forth between the transitions in life. I think the fourth commandment suggests that the way we find meaning is precisely in that transition back and forth between work and worship. On the Sabbath, we worship God in gratitude for the goodness of creation, but on the Sabbath, we also celebrate that Jesus rose on the first day. We should really try to implement that in our lives. The Sabbath, we're going back and forth between work and worship, one informing the other should be what forms the meaning of our lives. Now, you probably know I like Camus a little bit. There's more to his story. He died young at the age of 46. Uh, he died in a car accident. But especially after his Nobel Prize, he was very widely known in France. Uh, people, everyone knew who Camus was. Uh, except for the Americans living in France. They never got to know who he was very much. In the last couple of years of his life, Camus became very interested in the Christian faith. And so he started attending worship at the American church in Paris. And that's what it was called then, because it was mostly Americans. He would slip in a little bit late and leave a little bit early. And most of the Americans didn't know who he was. And there weren't any French journalists in an American Protestant church. And then he started going to a small group related to that church, an English-speaking small group. And uh, he asked the people not to tell anyone that he was considering becoming a Christian. After all of his ponderings about meaning and his arguing for atheism, he's pondering becoming a Christian. He asked the Christians in the small group not to tell anyone. He didn't want to see newspaper articles about himself that now he was considering giving up his atheism. And then he asked for Christian baptism. He was convinced enough of the Christian faith that he decided to accept Christian baptism and applied to be baptized at the American church in Paris. Howard Muma was the pastor there. Uh, I've read some of what he wrote about this. Uh, but then Camus tragically died in a car accident before he was baptized. But he saw that the meaning, the answers to his pondering questions about the meaning of life were found in the Christian faith. And the people in the small group who had come to know him well made an agreement that they would wait 50 years, half a century, before they talked about that because of the promises they had personally made to Albert Camus. And so 50 years after his death, they openly published, most of them had by this time died, so it was the 
duty of their descendants to tell the story of Camus coming to faith in Christ. What should this mean for us today? We live in a world that's asking questions about meaning. Uh, I think we have the answers to meaning in life here in Christ. What we have to do is to, to try to do this more and more. I think what that means is that we have to consciously structure our weeks to work and worship, worship for God, but worship God both. And then try to figure out how we can upgrade our act, so to speak, in terms of what we do with our Sabbath. Uh, having a good sa Sabbath celebration takes some planning, takes some effort, uh, takes some thinking and preparation. I started preparing this sermon 30 years ago. It's been developing that long. Most of my sermons don't develop that long. But, uh, and that's true for us, too. It may take some planning, some preparation, learning things we need to learn to celebrate the Sabbath well in community. Uh, some, some of you may need to learn a music instrument. Some of you may need to learn how to help with sound technology. Our guys have obviously been working hard on it this morning to solve some problems. Some of you may need to learn how to become a good Sunday school teacher. Surely some of our church-related colleges would have programs for that. We need to consciously think and plan our lives. How can we really become good at celebrating the Sabbath in community? Not by ourselves, but in, together in community. And let's try to really learn how to become good at this, of alternating back and forth between worship and work. And in that, demonstrate the kind of community that embodies the meaning that God has given us. And in this way, we as a community stand as an answer to the big question of the world around us. What is the meaning of life? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us to think pray and respond. Help us to, be, to become good at celebrating the Sabbath for your glory and an answer to the questions and needs of our world. In Jesus' name.